Okay, we're switching gears now to Theology 4, which you remember is Soteriology, Theology of How God Saves. And we're going to focus on the nature and source of sin and God's law in relation to sin. Okay? I'm going to try to go through some of this early stuff fairly fast, but... As usual, I don't think I'm going to get all the way through. We'll see what happens. Okay, what is sin and where did it come from? Well, the evidence that we have in Scripture is that sin came to the human race in Genesis 3. We know it exists. We know it's bad. Okay? Two questions arise. What exactly is sin and where did it come from? Okay, let's look a little more deeply. Words for sin in the Old Testament. I'm going to go through this really fast. There are a number of different Hebrew words for sin in the Old Testament. These are listed in your notes. And I think you do have soteriology notes, don't you? Yes. So, you should. It says hamartiology. It says okay, hamartiology. Okay, hamartiology is the doctrine of sin. Thank you. Good. Okay, I'm not going to read those names for you. Okay? Let me just summarize what we would see if we took time to look them up. Okay? Sin involves going contrary to a norm that is a law. Sin involves accidental as well as intentional deviations from the norm and from the right path. It involves a failure to measure up. Okay? Falling short of the mark. You may have heard that expression used. It involves the willful choice of another standard and the sinner is personally responsible for his sin. Now, every sin doesn't involve every one of these aspects, right? There is accidental as well as intentional sin. Not all sin is a willful choice of another standard. But these are the basic ideas that you would see if you studied the words for sin in the Old Testament. Now, if we went to the New Testament... There's another batch of words used, and again, I'm not going to read them in order to save some time. If we were to survey those, we would get these ideas on sin from the New Testament. Again, sin involves the violation of a known standard or norm, that is a law. Sin is rebellion against God and his standards. The idea is even stronger in the New Testament. Sin is intentional as well as unintentional. And the sinner is personally responsible for his sin. Okay? Basically the same ideas. Yes? Okay. Yes. We will get to that later. It's a great question. Okay? Yeah, it's passe non pecare or non passe pecare in Latin. But yes, we will get to the question of could Christ have sinned later? Uh, Hamartiology notes. I don't remember what page I'm on. Page 15? Okay, thank you. Okay. Some observations on the nature of sin. This is basically a summary of what we just saw. Sin is evil. It's moral evil for which the individual is responsible. 
It's transgression of God's law, and it is thus disobedience. Sin is a failure to conform to God's standards. And there's kind of an implicit idea there that we were designed to be conformed to God's standards. It's not merely an action, but it's also a principle seated in man's heart. It's not just that we sin. We are sinners by nature. What comes out is because of what we are. You know, Jesus said, from the heart flows sin. Okay, sin is not merely transgression, but it's also rebellion. The idea of high-handed saying, I'm going to do it my way and you can't stop me. Remember the first time your kid did that? Sin includes acts against men, but it's ultimately against God. Okay? Social reformers love to talk about man's inhumanity to man. Remember when you were in high school, that was the best way to explain any piece of literature in English class. You'd say it was about man's inhumanity to man. Well, some of you are laughing. Um, ultimately, sin is against God. It involves guilt and pollution or corruption. You know, sin is... We're, we weren't designed to be sinful. We were designed to bear the image of God. And so, having a sinful nature and sinning is a corruption of what we are really designed to be. Okay, now let's talk about some common ideas about sin. And these will kind of help to clarify our thinking. Okay? One common idea is that sin is sensuality, that is, the desire to, sense of, to, to satisfy the lower desires of the body. I think I'm missing a parenthesis there. Okay? This is a false concept. All right? Sensuality is not sin. Now, some sensuality is sin, but not all sensuality is sin. You know, for example... One of the ideas, or one of the ways that this would work out is that all sex is sinful. Okay, all sex is not sinful. Sex within marriage, exchanged in a loving way, is not sinful. It's actually glorious. It is an expression of the love of God. Okay? So this idea is false. Now, you know... The monks, the people who go off into the desert and wear hair shirts and sleep on stone beds and you know eat dried barley and all that kind of stuff, ascetic living very often was motivated by this false concept of sin. Okay, it's just not right. Okay, a second idea that's common about sin is that sin is selfishness, that is putting the self before God and others. I think this idea has some merit, but I don't think it's complete. Because there are some people who are fairly selfless, like Mother Teresa. How many times has Mother Teresa been thrown in your face when you say that those who don't respond to the gospel are damned? Okay, There have been people who at least were dedicated to the idea of serving mankind who were still sinful. Okay? You know, the, the Pol Pot 
in uh, Cambodia and all the things that they did, a lot of those people who did that believed that they were doing it in order to bring in utopia. Now, I think in the process of carrying out those actions, they became horribly corrupted. And I'm not sure that their motives were pure by the end. But selfishness is part of sin, but I don't think it's the whole picture. I think it falls a little short. Okay? Third idea is that sin is displacement of God, putting anything else before him. Now, here it's putting self before him. Here it's putting anything before him. This is probably a better approach than just saying that sin is selfishness. And you've seen those tracks that, you know, you got a picture of a little chair and either you're sitting on the throne or Christ is on the throne. The idea that Christ should be on the throne of your life is kind of the flip side of you being there or anything else being there as the primary value in your life. I think these things are helpful to look at. Let's look at some definitions of sin that have been offered by different theologians. Okay, this first one sounds just like the last page. Sin is the displacement of God from the supreme position in one's life. Okay? That's a pretty workable definition. It seems a little abstract. Okay? How about this one? Sin is the lack of conformity to the moral law of God, either in act, disposition, or state. Now, that last phrase is important. It's not just what you do. It's not just what you're inclined to do. It even includes what your nature is inclined to make you inclined to do. Okay? You know, having a sinful nature doesn't always mean that every moment... You feel like sinning, but it does mean that the time will come when you do feel like sinning, right? So that's kind of an interesting definition. How about this one? Sin may def- be defined ultimately as anything in the creature which does not express or which is contrary to the holy character of the creator. Now, I really like this one, personally, because this turns it around and reminds us what we were created for. What were we created for? To bear the image of God. Okay? When we sin, we project a false image of God. Just as if that projector were messed up and spit out different words than I put in it, it would be projecting a false image of what it is I'm trying to present to you. Okay? Sin is lying about God, if you want to think about it that way. We are creatures that were designed to bear God's image, and when we sin, what are we doing? We are telling lies about God. You know, there's an illustration I love to use with uh, teenagers. And I'll go through it really quickly. Let's suppose that there are Martians living on Mars... This doesn't work chronologically, but just try it on. They're living on Mars, and they hear that God has just created a creature on Earth that bears his image. So they pick one of the Martians, and he gets in his spaceship, and he flies down to Earth, and he lands outside the Garden of Eden, and he pulls out his ladder, and he peeks over the wall, because he's only three feet tall, you know. And he looks in there, and he sees these two very 
beautiful creatures and they're walking arm in arm and they're talking and they're making plans about how to improve the garden and they're planting flowers and they snuggle up at night. He goes back to Mars and he says, God is intelligent. God is affectionate. God makes plans. God makes the world more beautiful. You know, and all these things. And they just found out what God was like. But if when he went to fly down to the earth, he discovered his flying saucer had a flat tire and it took him a couple of days and he gets to the earth after the fall. He looks over the wall and there's nobody there. And he looks over there and there's this man and this woman and they're like this with their backs to each other and she says, you never bring home any good food. He says, well, you ate the apple and they're fighting and they're throwing rocks at each other and he goes back to his people and he says, well... God isn't very friendly and he's not loving and he's argumentative and he's all these things and you can see that a fallen human being tells lies about God. You know? It's really what we were created for. And then someone will always ask, well, who's watching? And the answer is that the angelic world is watching. And you go read the first part of Ephesians chapter 3 and you'll see that. We won't do that right now. Okay? All right, where did sin come from? Here's a great question. Okay. I think we need to keep some ideas in mind, and we've talked about this already. God is not the author of sin. He doesn't sin. Okay? And you can look up these verses. They're in your notes. Although God's plan anticipated sin and even permitted sin... We can't say that God sinned in action. As we said in the last hour, moral responsibility lies with the one who sins. You're probably all comfortable with this, right? Okay. All right. Secondly, sin originated in heaven. If you look at Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, I believe that those are accounts of Satan in his original choice to sin. And then Satan left heaven and he came down and he introduced rebellion to the human race in Genesis 3. Question. Um, if Satan was in heaven, does that mean he created the image? Yes. Well, yes it does, okay? In fact, if you look at these two chapters, you will see that the description of Satan suggests that he was probably the most intelligent, most beautiful creature that God ever made. It says that he was the anointed cherub who covers. And it seems that he had a special job in the throne room of God, standing behind God's throne and sort of sheltering God with his wings. And there's an interesting thing to think about because when God told the Israelites to make the Ark of the Covenant, you know what that is? Okay, on the Ark of the Covenant, how many angels are there? There's two. Now, my personal theory is that after Satan rebelled, God said nobody's ever going to have that job again alone. So there are two angels, and the two angels can look at each other and they can say, well, there's at least one other angel in the universe who's good enough for this job so they won't get fat heads. That's my personal heresy. I, I think there's some merit to it, but I can't prove it. Okay. But so is that argue for multiple elder leadership? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good argument I like that but anyway um, the, the description that's given here 
it's, it basically says that Satan looked at himself and he decided that he was beautiful and he decided he wanted to take the, the job of God and it says he corrupted his wisdom for the sake is it for the sake of his pride? Okay? And he basically chose to believe what he wasn't what he knew wasn't true, which is that he was worthy to take God's place in order to puff his pride up. He was self-deceived. And ultimately, we are too until we come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, sin came to the race through Adam. The time will come when we'll study Romans 5 in some detail and we'll see that. We've talked about it a little bit already. Adam's sin called sin to enter the race. But never does Paul say that Adam created sin. He says that sin came to man through Adam. It's like Satan used Adam like a big, I can't even say this right, like a big hypodermic needle. I always say hypodemic myrtle. <laughs> to inject sin into the human race. Okay. Now, the conclusion of all this is that although God anticipated, permitted, and even used sin in his plan, we can't say that he created or committed sin. Okay? No, absolutely not. That's why anticipated, permitted, and used. Some people would go so far as to say planned. Okay, I personally wouldn't have difficulty with that. But it was part of his decree. And if God's decree is his plan, then you can't say that he didn't plan for sin to occur. <clears throat> okay. Let's talk about God's law and its relationship to sin. What's the nature of law? What's its purpose and function in God's plan? Well, we need to consider three concepts. The nature of law, generally the specific nature of God's law, the purpose of God's law. Is this too dry? Okay. All right. All right, the general nature of law. All right, Thiessen gives a definition of law. This is kind of long, but I think it's really helpful. He says, law is an expression of will enforced by power. It implies a lawgiver, a subject, an expression of his will, and power enforcing that will. Now, the terms laws of na nature and laws of the mind and so forth are contradictions when they're used to denote a mode of action or an order of sequence behind which there is conceived to be no ordering will and enforcing power. What he's saying is laws of nature are not laws in the sense that this is a law. Okay? The sense of law that he is talking about is law where there's a lawgiver who says, this is what I want done, and if you don't do it, I'm going to get you. Was he a lawyer? I don't know. He might have been. Thiessen is a very Arminian theologian, by the way. But he's got a lot of good stuff. Okay. Now, he says, law is not an efficient and operating cause. It has no independent existence apart from a lawgiver. It presupposes a lawgiver 
and it's only the mode according to which the lawgiver proceeds. Okay? Law exists because there's a lawgiver enforcing it. It can't exist if there's no lawgiver there. Okay? And, you know, that goes back to one of our interesting arguments for the existence of God, right? We said that there is a moral law that seems to be evident, wired in our very minds. Now, it had to be put there by somebody. And ultimately, if God's will is going to be enforced, and if there will be judgment, there has to be somebody there to do the judging. That's the basic idea that's being stated here. Okay? Now, notice how Thiessen's definition illustrates the truth that sin is primarily an act directed against God because the law expresses his will, and when we refuse to obey that will, we are acting against him. Okay? All right. Now, the specific nature of God's law, it can be broken down into two parts. I think this is helpful, and you'll see how this ties in with what we just looked at. Elemental law is the law that's built into the physical universe, like the laws of physics or the laws of nature that the guy was talking about in the last paragraph. Okay? Now, God doesn't have to enforce these directly because he built them into the very fabric of the universe. Okay? Positive enactment is God's will expressed in published law, and this is what we find in Scripture. Now, elemental law is for things. Positive enactment is for persons, right? When I say persons, I mean beings with personality, which is basically humans and angels. Okay? Well, sure, sure. I mean, yeah, if I take a hatchet and cut off my finger, it will detach. That's the laws of physics. Yes, we're subject to both of these. That's right. But only persons are subject to this one. Very good point. Okay. Now, regarding its specific nature, God's law can be understood as an expression of his character in the sense that it tells how God wants the creature that bears his image to live. And you see this very clearly in the portions of the Pentateuch where God says, be holy because I am holy. Okay? What's he doing? He's calling them back to the very beginning of the book of Genesis which says God created us to bear his image. All right. God's law and its relationship to sin. Let's talk about the purpose of God's law. Now, thinking back, think back to what you know about God giving the law to the Israelites. It's important to keep in mind the sequence of events that occurred. First, he called the nation into a covenant relationship with him. He said, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. Okay? Then he provided a means of fellowship and communication with himself. And that's when he said, build the tabernacle and all of its furniture this way. He did that after he established that relationship. Okay? He repeated the law to a second generation. You know, there was the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea and they wandered in the desert for 40 years. He repeated it again. 
Now, notice that the law was given after the nation was called into covenant with him. Okay? The law did not establish the relationship. The law was given to foster and improve and perpetuate the relationship by giving the people a way of relating to God. And implicit in that, okay, was the very idea that they would sin. Now you'll see that in the next slide here. Okay? It seems clear that these are among his purposes for giving his law. Okay? It laid out God's will for the Israelites in order to solemnize their covenant relationship with him. In other words, he said, you are now my people. This is the way I want you to live. I want you to live in such a way that sets you apart so everybody will know you belong to me. Now, second, it provided a means of fellowship with God and a means of access to him through the tabernacle and sacrificial system. And by the way, not all the sacrifices dealt with sin, did they? A lot of them were just a way to express love for God and to celebrate his goodness. Okay? It provided a means by which fellowship could be restored when people fell into sin. Now, the very fact that so much of the law deals with this makes the whole idea that God ever intended the Israelites to become righteous by obeying the law absolutely ludicrous. And yet the idea is floating around in our churches that the reason God gave the law to the Israelites was so that if they obeyed it, they could be saved. Couldn't be farther from the truth. They're, they're, in fact, the Lord Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, but there are some parts of the law he never obeyed. He never gave a sacrifice for sin because he never sinned. I think the law made clear that it was impossible to live without sin. I think it was given to restrain evil. The civil law did a lot of good that way. Now, I've already said this. The law was never intended to provide a means of establishing righteousness through obedience. It wasn't designed to do this. It can't do this. It was a gracious provision to people who God had already called into fellowship with himself. Now, we'll explore this a little more on the next slide. Okay? We're still looking at the purpose of God's law. Now, what does the New Testament teach? It teaches it was never God's intention to make eternal life possible through obeying the law. Listen to what Galatians 3.21 says. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have come by the law. But there never was such a law given. That was never the purpose of the law. Now, Paul sometimes does speak negatively of the law. But I think if you look at where he does it, he's always talking about the misuse of the law. He also calls the law holy and good, doesn't he? The law was a good thing. It just wasn't any good for getting saved because that's not what it was for. It wasn't its purpose. Okay? 
I think law was given to strengthen the knowledge of sin, to reveal God's holiness, and to lead sinners to Christ for forgiveness. And you can look up these passages, but I think you're probably familiar with them. These concepts are not new to you, I'm sure. Law was given to restrain evil. It's obvious that fear of breaking the law does restrain people from sin. Now, we live in a culture, unfortunately, where the consequences of breaking civil law are very rapidly going to zero, aren't they? You know, you can you can go bankrupt now and declare Chapter 11 and keep a lot of your stuff. You can steal a car and get a plea bargain. Or if you go to prison, you discover that you're living at a higher standard of living than you were when, before you went in. You know? You commit murder, and there's always some bleeding heart who's going to come along and say, but don't kill this person. He's a good person. Well, unfortunately, we are going against this purpose of the law. By the way, we won't go into it. The, descript the discussion of the law as a tutor in Galatians chapter 3 is probably not saying that the law was there to teach us. We think the word tutor means teacher, but in the context in which that was written, a tutor was basically a bodyguard who took the kid to school and brought him home. Okay. All right. Conclusion. The New Testament indicates that the purposes of the law never included works righteousness. It was never about getting saved. It did include revealing God's righteousness as an incentive to seek Christ. It did include a restraining effect on sinful behavior for the benefit of man in general and the elect in particular. These are, these are all good things, aren't they? Except for the first one, which isn't part of the purposes of law. Okay, more on the purpose. Did I just duplicate that slide? I did. Okay, let's go down to the next one. Objections to the fall. Okay? Now you say, where does this come from? Well, we've talked about sin. We've talked some about its consequences. We've talked about the fact that Adam's sin makes us sinful. Some people read the account of the fall in Scripture and they say, that can't be right. I refuse to accept it. I don't believe God that works that way. I don't believe the universe works that way. Okay? And they would often say, God doesn't work that way and a good God wouldn't allow evil to exist in the world. Okay? Have you ever heard this little thing? If God is God, he is not good. If God is good, he is not God. Have you ever heard that? No? Okay. Well, basically, if God is sovereign, he's not good because he allows sin to exist. If God is good, he's not sovereign because he can't stop evil from existing. You've heard this kind of an argument, right? A good God wouldn't allow such a rotten world to exist. People will often say this. Okay? I think I've explained this. Why did God allow evil to exist? Why did he allow the suffering that comes from evil? Doesn't the presence of evil and sin in God's plan make God guilty of sin? Now, we've answered the third question, but the first two questions still stand. 
Now, people, uh, people, Christians have responded to this in a number of different ways. Okay? First response is that the existing world is the best of all possible worlds. Voltaire made fun of this, by the way. For those of you who have read Voltaire, okay, I guess you haven't. Anyway, Voltaire was, was a French skeptic. He was anything but a Christian. And he used to make jokes about this being the best of all possible worlds, but he didn't mean it at all. Okay? But those who use this defense say that God knew that a world with sin was better than one without sin. Well, I think that that's true, but you need more information to make sense of it. That by itself isn't a very good response because we know that one day there's going to be a whole universe without sin, right? And it's going to be better than this one. So you need more. Okay, that's not good enough by itself. Okay, the second one is what's called the free will defense. God could have made man without free will, but then man would have been lower than if he had free will. Even so, God knew that man would fall. God made us with free will because we're better creatures having free will than we would have been if we didn't. Okay? Now, there's some merit to this, provided you don't go too far in your understanding of free will. In order for God to make us in his image, he had to make us moral creatures, didn't he? Creatures with the capability of making choices that had moral implications, such as the choice between good and evil. I think this is true. But I think we still need more. Okay. Here's an interesting one. God wanted not to create a perfect creature, but to create a creature capable of and needing moral development. The existence of evil provides the necessary environment and motive for development. Now, this one kind of comes out of left field. It's kind of a psychological, modern concept. You know, it's almost evolutionary question. Well, it makes me think of when someone told me once that God created us because he wanted us to be needed. Well, there, there is a flavor of that in there. Okay? Um... I'm a little hesitant to say that God needed us, but I'm perfectly willing to say that he wanted us to enjoy fellowship with him. Um, I think the problem with this one is that this doesn't take seriously enough the offensive nature of sin to God. You know, you could say that God could have put us in a world that wasn't sinful, but it was just challenging. And this would make more sense. So, I don't, I don't think this one is very satisfying. But, you know, I think your observation is important. God made us because he wants us and because we do something for him. And ultimately, we will represent him, we will bear his image, we will worship him, we will have direct fellowship with him. So, we are headed in that direction. Okay. Now, I think this, together with this, and even a little bit of this is the best answer. 
Although God hates evil, he allowed it because it provides a means of bringing the greatest glory to himself through the plan of redemption. And back to what you were saying. I don't know your name. Cheryl. Cheryl. Redeemed humans have greater value to God than, I didn't finish it, than people who started out sinless and didn't get redeemed. Okay? Now, I, I think this is very true. The history of our redemption, when we get to eternity, will be a reminder of what God has done and further evidence of his capability. And what he is like and what he can do will be more evident because he brought us through that process. Okay? And if you don't mind me saying it, the presence of the unsaved in the lake of fire will also be a reminder of that. Difficult to thought as that is. Okay? Hey, David. Can you loosely fit C under the definition of sanctification? Of course, the preacher would have been saved. Yeah. I'm not sure that people who come up with this idea see it that way, but you can see sanctification. Sanctification happens in the process of living in a sinful world and making godly choices by the power of the Spirit to do what is right. And and you're right. It's the very presence of the challenging temptations to sin in this sinful world that makes the process of sanctification both difficult but also effective. You know, if we never got tested, you know, we wouldn't grow in the way that we do. So I think there is some value to this. But by itself, I don't think this is enough to explain it. I think ultimately we've got to push it to the concept of the glory of God because that's really the only thing that I can see that makes the price of sin acceptable to God. Other questions or observations? We actually finished this batch and finished the last class. All right. Let's pray and let's go. Father, we <coughs> we pause to think <coughs> about the reality of evil. The pain that it causes may not be as great now as it has been at other times in our lives and as it will be again. Please help us when we encounter evil, either in ourselves or in others, to remember that you have a purpose for it, not to rejoice in it, but to rejoice in your purposes and the knowledge that you will accomplish them. Please make us willing agents of yours, Father. Don't let us go kicking and screaming to our destiny of being conformed to Christ. But give us the desire to cooperate with you in that process. And from time to time, a glimpse that would help us to see that it is happening. Please dismiss us with your blessing. Protect us as we go home. Draw us near to you through the week. Amen.